Good morning. My name is Brian Bergman. I am uh, one of the members here. I'm a, a deacon here. And one of my responsibilities as a deacon is in the areas of uh, education and spiritual formation. And I once was on the uh, preaching team before uh, Jim took on the preaching responsibilities in a more full-time capacity. But I still occasionally have the opportunity to come before you and preach, and it's a privilege uh, to be before you again today. We're going to be reading from the book of Mark chapter 10 in a few moments. So if you have a Bible with you and want to go ahead and uh, be turning that direction, that's where we'll be uh, shortly. As you turn there, I want to thank Robert for his excellent uh, communion uh, thoughts this morning. Uh, But you do owe me $10 now. Uh, My son was sitting next to me and he looked at me and said, Dad, do you love me? I gave him a hug, but I expect I'm going to have to give him the $10 later, so I'll be coming to you for that. When we were children, we often played games where, under the, the, the game, we were supposed to follow the instructions of someone else, follow the leader, uh, Simon Says, different games that were where one person is in charge of the group, and the rest of the group has to respond and act like the leader. And as I researched uh, some of these games, it was interesting to note that uh, some of these games were developed and are used in classrooms uh, for the purpose of teaching children about following instructions, about listening to their instructor. Uh, but it's interesting, if you've ever actually watched children play a game of follow the leader, it's quite amusing. Because the goal of the game, follow the leader, is the leader is chosen And the leader's job is to lead the rest of the players around, uh, trying to get them uh, to make a mistake and and fail to mimic the leader in some way. And so you see all these crazy hand motions and and jumping around and gestures, all in the name of trying to get the followers to stumble, get the followers to make a mistake. And so it's interesting to watch how leadership, how having that role can change the person who is at the front of the line. Our text today is built on the idea that Jesus is our leader. And in order to be his followers, we must mimic his actions. However, unlike a child's game, Jesus' actions are not arbitrary. Instead, his actions, though difficult to follow, are intentional and are full of purpose and meaning. As we've been moving through Mark, we are in the middle section of the book. The first part of the book talks about the early days of Jesus' ministry. Uh, the power of his miracles, his early teaching that caught people's attention. And for the last few weeks, we've been going through chapters 8, 9, and 10. And in these chapters, Mark is making a transition. He's making a pivot from the early ministry of Jesus. And he's turning the reader's attention to Jesus' final ministry in Jerusalem at the cross. And in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to read about the triumphal entry. We're going to read about the last few weeks of Jesus' life. We're going to read about his death, burial, and resurrection. But where we are today, we're still in that transition period. And in this transition period, Jesus has been trying to prepare his disciples for what's coming. He's trying to prepare them for the unexpected. So if you will, let's read together from Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. 
Again, he took up the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and asked, and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as the last few weeks have progressed, beginning at chapter 8, we've looked at a series of stories in which Jesus has been foretelling his death and resurrection, in which he's been revealing the true nature of discipleship. In chapter 8, following his declaration that uh, he's going to be crucified, Jesus, who had just said that you are the Messiah, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And instead, it's Jesus who rebukes him as a satanic influence and tells him he doesn't have God's purposes in mind. In chapter 9, Jesus again foretells his death. And immediately, his disciples have an argument on the road about who was the greatest among them. And once again, Jesus takes them aside and tells them, whoever must be great among you must become the last. Whoever is going to be the leader must be the one who serves. And so in this passage today, Jesus again foretells of his death and his resurrection. He tells the time is, the time is coming. And what happens here in Mark 10 is the instruction gets more specific. He's much more detailed about how he's going to die. There's much more of an eminence of what's going to happen. There's much more of a nearness of what's going to happen. He says, I'm going to be handed over by the Jewish leaders to the Gentiles. And they are going to beat me, mock me, and crucify me. So when, Jesus, so when Mark says that they're on their way up to Jerusalem, the picture that Mark paints here is of a very deliberate action by Jesus. In verse 32, Mark says that, that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and he is leading the way. What Mark wants us to see here is that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem fully aware of what's going to happen when he gets there. And when, Jesus, when Mark says that Jesus is leading the way, the picture I want you to see from here, this is, this is the same word that Matthew uses at the beginning of his gospel to describe the star leading the wise men to Jesus. It's a guide that they are following, and it comes to rest over the place where Jesus is so that the Magi can find him. Jesus is the guide to the disciples. He is leading them to the place that they need to go. He's leading them to the place where they are going to truly find him. It's also the word that both Matthew and Mark use in the resurrection 
when the angel appears to the women at the tomb and says, He is risen, and he has gone before you into Galilee. You will see him there. The implication is that the disciples are supposed to follow Jesus into Galilee. He is their guide, he is their leader, and they are to follow him. That's the word that Mark uses here. Jesus is leading the way. He's not, he doesn't just happen to be at the front of the group. He is stepping in front of them, leading the way to Jerusalem, showing them where to go, fully aware of what is going to happen to him, fully aware of how he is going to suffer when he gets there. His position at the head of the crowd is no mere coincidence. He is at the front of the crowd on purpose. So James and John come to Jesus, and they have a request. They can't present their request to Jesus simply. They kind of have to hide behind it and say, Jesus, we want you to do something for us, and we want you to promise to do whatever we ask. Any parent of a small child knows this tactic. We've all seen it. And Jesus, with the depth skill of any experienced parent, knows not to commit himself. And he simply asks the question, well, what do you want? They have nothing to hide behind now. So James and John come out and say it. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your glory. They're not just asking to be Jesus' seatmates on the airplane. They're not just asking to sit next to him at dinner. What they are asking Jesus is to make him, make them the most prominent members of his kingdom. This is political language. This is leadership language. The right hand and the left hand of a king is where his closest advisor and his closest protector sit. These are the people that the king is going to rely on the most. This is the people the king is going to trust the most. And James and John want that position when Jesus comes into his kingdom. Now, so doesn't it strike you as odd that Jesus has just said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And the next thing out of James and John's mouth is, can we be your chief of staff and your vice president? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Now, in hindsight, it's easy to see the absurdity of what James and John are asking. We know the end of the story. We know where this is going. Jesus is trying to get them to see the end of the story, but they're not going to fully comprehend until the story comes to its conclusion. And so it strikes me that James and John are acting in a very human way. This is how we often deal with cognitive dissonance. When something comes up and opposes what we believe, we just double down on what we believe. James and John believe that Jesus is going to be the Messiah. And that as the Messiah, he is going to be the king of Israel. And so they double down on that. And they come to Jesus and say, please, Jesus, put us at your right and your left. Let us have these positions of authority in your kingdom. Let us have this power. Let us have this position. Despite the boldness of their request, Jesus doesn't scold them. It's interesting that Jesus does not scold James and John. Instead, he asks them a question. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And in their eagerness, they say, of course we can, Jesus. Of course we can do what you're going to do. And he assures them, you will suffer. You will drink the cup I drink. 
You will be baptized with my baptism. But this place that you've asked is not mine to give. It's already been reserved for someone by God. And it will be given to those people. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on James and John. We should not judge them in this moment for this question. Because when we look at James and John, we see that in the end, they did drink the cup that Jesus drinks. In Acts chapter 12, James is going to be beheaded and killed for his witness in front of Herod. John, though he ends up being probably the longest living apostle, he suffered years of persecution and ends his life in exile. So they do both fulfill their statement that they can drink the cup of Jesus and be baptized with his baptism. But the place of Jesus' right and left is not theirs. Now, it's interesting to note before we move away from this verse that the only time that Mark uses this phrase, left and right of Jesus again, is while Jesus is on the cross. And the people at Jesus' left and right are two criminals who are being crucified with him. And the way Mark presents Jesus' crucifixion is as a coronation scene. He's been robed by the Roman soldiers. A crown has been placed on his head. And as he hangs on the cross, Pilate places a sign above his head that says, King of the Jews. Now they think they're mocking him. But in reality, they are placing Jesus on his throne. And at his right and his left are two criminals, two common criminals. I think that's an interesting observation to to note. So it's not the request of James and John that actually gets us into the heart of this passage. It's what happens next. When the other disciples hear about James and John's request, they get mad. It's a natural reaction. And you can almost hear the grumbling and the whisperings. You hear what James and John did? Can you believe they had the audacity to go to Jesus and ask for these positions? They're mad. But who are they really mad at? They're mad at themselves for not thinking of it first. They're mad that they didn't get at the head of the line. Because remember, a couple chapters ago, they're all arguing about who's the greatest. They all think they deserve this position. James and John's were the only ones bold enough to do something about it. And the rest of the disciples are mad. And that's when Jesus takes the opportunity to pull his disciples together and give them this core teaching at the crux of who he is. He pulls them together and says, You know that the Gentile leaders lord it over them, that they exercise authority over them. He points to the nature of Gentile leadership and says, That's not what my kingdom looks like. Now keep in mind that just a couple verses ago, Jesus has said he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And when he's handed over to the Gentiles, he's going to be mocked, spit on, and crucified, and eventually resurrected. Jesus himself is going to personally taste and understand the full brunt of Roman authority. Jesus is going to become the object of Roman aggression when Roman authority is questioned. And he says, you know how the Romans deal with people. You know how the Gentiles deal with people. That's not what we are going to be about. Unless we make a mistake here, while Jesus says that the Gentiles are like this, he does not give a pass to the Jewish leaders either. Just a few chapters ago in Mark, we've read about John the Baptist Baptist being beheaded by Herod. 
the Roman proxy, the, the Jewish proxy for Rome. And as we just said a minute ago, James is going to be beheaded by Herod. The Jewish authorities don't act any differently than the Gentile authorities. It's the Jewish authorities who are going to hand Jesus over to the Gentiles, expecting them to do their dirty work, expecting them to crucify him. So the Israelite, leader, the Israelite leaders get no pass here. Leadership, at its most base form, Jesus says, is based on authority and power and domination. And what he wants his disciples to see is that is not the way it's going to be in the kingdom of Jesus. What Jesus says is the path of greatness is to be a servant. The way to rise to the top is to fall to the bottom. There is no room for domination. And to emphasize his point, Jesus says that the very Son of Man, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the example to which they will need to look. And I think Mark is setting this up intentionally. That's why back in verse 32, he says Jesus is leading the way. He's out in front showing them the path. Because in this teaching, he says the Son of Man is going to give his life as a ransom. And because of that, you too must learn how to serve. You too must learn how to become the slave of the other. And so as we think about this passage in its, in its totality, what we see is Jesus is very intentionally walking towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem is at the core of Jewish identity. It is full of religious and political significance. It is the home of the temple. It's the place that God once resided, and it's the place where the Israelites are eagerly waiting for him to return. They're waiting for God to take his throne on the temple once again. It's the place of sacrifice, it's the place of worship. It's the place of dedication. It's their capital city. It's been the residence of kings. It's been the birthplace of armies and military campaigns. It's the source of their law and the source of their organizing principles as a people. Jesus is walking into the core of their identity. It's the home of the religious leadership, the social elite. It's the home of the thought leaders. Rome understands this. They fortified the city. There are numerous soldiers here to prepare to, to put down a rebellion. And Jesus is deliberately walking into this city. He's deliberately walking into this hornet's nest. Mark says in verse 32 that the, the disciples were astonished. They're astonished because the time is quickly approaching. They've been waiting for Jesus to show himself as the Messiah. And they think he's about to do it. But the crowd is frightened. The crowd is frightened because they feel a battle coming. They feel a conflict coming, and they're not sure how to react. But there's Jesus at the front, deliberately on his way, leading the way into Jerusalem. But it turns out that Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to spark a confrontation with the religious, political, and military establishment. Instead, he's going to Jerusalem to subvert them. He's going to show that... He's going to Jerusalem to show that the way to confront the powers of this world is not, try to, not to try to emulate them, but to undermine them and take their power away. So when Mark says that Jesus is leading the way, he's not just leading them to a physical location. He's leading them to a new way of life. He's leading them to a new way of thinking. He's leading them to a new understanding of God's kingdom. As one commentator wrote, Clearly, worldly notions of rank, honor, and privilege are out of place in the church that names Jesus as Lord. 
Self-seeking has no place in a church founded on the ultimate self-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The road to the cross leads in a different direction from the road to success. If one follows Jesus along his road, seeking glory for oneself is out of place. All those things are out of character in Jesus' kingdom. Now what I find interesting is, it was not the ambition of James and John that Jesus criticized. It was the methodology, it was the motive, it was the strife that it would cause amongst the disciples that Jesus criticized. He doesn't criticize wanting to have influence in his kingdom. What he criticizes is wanting to have influence for personal gain. What he criticizes is wanting to have influence so that you can have authority over others. What he criticizes is wanting to have influence so that others can serve you. And so as we consider the meaning of this passage, I want to briefly try to see three implications uh, for areas of influence that we have based on this passage. The first area of influence that I want to think about is the influence we have in the broad world outside the church, outside of the kingdom. Now, these principles that Jesus lays forth in this passage, we could apply these principles in our workplace. We could apply these principles in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our homeowners associations, in our relationships with our neighbors. But the area I specifically want to think about today is the political world. The thought that I've had throughout my preparation for this sermon is that throughout my 40-plus years in the church, you know, from the time I was born, I've heard countless teachers, preachers, and church members say something along the lines that the problem the Jews had was that they were looking for an earthly kingdom. But Jesus was coming to establish a heavenly kingdom. And this passage in Mark demonstrates this, this dichotomy. On the one hand, they're expecting Jesus to be the Son of Man, prophesied by Daniel. This new king who was going to come and reestablish Israel's power, identity, and authority. But they're trying to reconcile that with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the servant who's going to be killed, the servant who's going to give his life for the benefit of the nation. And they don't understand how to put those two things together. And because of their social situation, because of the identity they have, they kind of default to the Son of Man. They don't want the suffering servant, they want the powerful king, they want the leader of an army. They want the one with the power, the might, and the ambition to get rid of the Roman Empire. But that's not what Jesus was coming to do. Jesus was coming to establish his kingdom based on his principles. And so Jesus shows in this passage that the success of his kingdom is not going to lie in their ability to seize the existing power structures. The success of their kingdom is not going to be on their ability to take over the throne, to command armies, and to baptize them in the name of God. No, the success of their kingdom is going to lie completely in completely subverting the power structures and rendering them, rendering them powerless over the people of God who put their faith in him. And so it, it somewhat startles me that while we as Christians see this distinction in Jesus' day, we don't see the distinction between the earthly kingdom and the kingdom of God in our modern political structures. Scroll through Facebook, Twitter, any social media read blogs, and you'll see that many Christians believe that the success of the church and of Christ's kingdom rests on our ability to obtain positions of power within parties, 
within legislatures and within courts. We think that the success of the kingdom rests on our our ability to get a particular candidate elected. Our hopes and fears rise and fall with each election as the stakes grow higher and higher. As more and more political commentators tell us, this is the election that's going to determine the future of our people. And we as Christians, we walk right along with it. Brothers and sisters, the words of Jesus are as true today for us as they were for the disciples. Those who are regarded as leaders of our political systems lord it over us and they exercise authority over us. But that's not how it is to be with us. Whoever would be great in our society must become our servant. The political power structures around us do not have in mind the kingdom of God, and they are not designed for the advancement of God's kingdom. We must not rely on them to bring about kingdom values, kingdom objectives. Now, that does not mean that we disengage from the world around us. Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That statement about Jesus giving his life as a ransom is not just a theory of atonement. It's not just a statement of how we get our sins washed so we can go to heaven. It's a statement about Jesus' purpose. His purpose was to come and free people from the things that oppress them. His his purpose was to come and free people who could not free themselves. He gave up his position, his power, and his authority to become a man and die on a cross to free others. And that's the example that he sets for us. And so we engage with the world around us. We seek out oppression and try to relieve it. We seek out the hurting. We seek out injustice and try to try to stop it. Because Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, and we too should use our lives to free those who can't free themselves. The second area of influence we have is within the kingdom, or what we would call the church. As Jesus says, the power structures of the Gentiles have no place here. Instead, those who would want to have influence in the church must serve. In fact, Peter, in his, book, in his letter to the church in 1 Peter, uses these very words of Jesus when he instructs the elders among us. And he says that they are to be eager and willing to serve, not seeking money, and not lording it over their flock. Jesus takes these, Peter takes these very words of Jesus and says, this is how the church is supposed to function. The leaders are not supposed to lord it over the church. Instead, they're supposed to be examples for the flock. And just as Jesus was deliberately leading the disciples to Jerusalem, a church should expect its leaders to lead the way into Christ's paradigm for leadership. So as a congregation, we've been asked recently to bring forth names of men to serve as leaders of this congregation. And while that part of the process is complete, and while our elders are considering whom they're going to invite into that process, we should be in prayer for those who will eventually be given positions of leadership. We should pray that they would have the power of the Holy Spirit to guide them into these positions. That through the power of the Spirit, they will be able to submit themselves and lead as examples the way Jesus did. But it's not enough for us to pray for them and hope that the new leaders will live up to the words of Jesus. When we filled out those forms, we were asked if we would submit to the names of the men that we put forth. And I think that's a true commitment that our elders expect us to have. That we will submit to these men. The Hebrew writer says in chapter 13 that we should obey and submit ourselves to our leaders so that their work will be a joy, so that their work will not be a burden on them. So this is a mutual undertaking. 
Our leaders submit to us, but we submit to them, seeking to outdo one another in honor. And the last area of influence I want to think about today is within our family. Today is Father's Day. It's already been mentioned several times. And when I first read this passage several months ago, thinking about it being Father's Day, I thought this was going to be a fantastic passage uh, around which to form a Father's Day sermon. You've all heard the traditional Father's Day sermon, talking about the stoic father quietly leading his family through acts of service. But as we do on Mother's Day, we have to be mindful today, the challenges that this world presents. Many of our fathers did not live up to these ideals. Many of our fathers were not the sacrificial servants that we see in Jesus. Many of us grew up in homes where there was no father, where he was not consistently present. And as we've seen, this can have a devastating effect in a faith system that regularly calls God our father. How do we relate to a God called father when we can't even rely on our earthly fathers? And so today is a difficult day. Today is a day where we try to honor the men among us who are doing fatherhood well, where we try to honor those who are serving as father to their grandchildren, to their brothers, to their sisters, to their nieces, to their nephews, to mothers who are having to be both mothers and fathers. We honor people who are filling that role for the children around us. But we also have to recognize that we only have one true father, and that is our father in heaven. And so to those of you who are filling this role of fatherhood, we salute you. To those whose fathers fell short of expectations, we empathize with you. And to those who must be a father where one is not present, we stand beside you. And so at the end of the day, as I think about Jesus' instruction here in Mark chapter 10, it's not just for fathers. It's for every one of us. In the household code of Ephesians, Paul says that we must submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So husbands, lead your wives and sacrifice yourselves for them the way Christ did for the church. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Fathers, love your children. Don't exasperate them. Children, obey your parents. Paul has an instruction for every member of the household based on this principle, that he who would have influence must serve. He who would be great in a community must become the servant of that community. When we look around us in our own families, I think we realize that some of the greatest power struggles we will see are within our own families. Husbands and wives jostle for authority. Parents are trying to have influence over their kids. Their kids are trying to expand their own areas of influence. And because we live with these people on a daily basis, that's where we see the most conflict. My favorite book on marriage is called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. And the premise of his book is that marriage and the home is a laboratory where we learn how to put the principles of Christ into practice. In our homes, in our marriages, in our families, we learn how to forgive. We learn how to be forgiven. We learn how to serve. We learn how to be served. And we learn how to relate on a daily basis as the challenges of life confront us. And so we learn how to extend grace, and we serve in our day-to-day interactions with those in our homes. And as we learn how to do that in our homes, we bring those lessons with us into the church, We bring those lessons into our workplace. We bring those lessons into our neighborhood so that we can be the servant and slave to all. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is showing us where to go. The question for us is, will we follow? 
The question for us is, will we do and follow the example that he has given? If there's anything we can do for you today, if we can pray for you, if we can serve you, if we can support you in anything, please come, let us know. We'll pray for you. We'll help you in any way that we can. Please come while we stand, while we sing this song.